0: Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by The Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman. I'm a counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a contributor to The Bulwark, and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center at the University of Virginia. My normal partner, Elliot Cohn, is still traveling, but he will be back uh, in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, I have as a very special guest, Ganul Tol, who's the founding director of the Middle East Institute's Turkey Program. Uh, She was educated at Middle East Technical University in Ankara, a place where one of my distinguished predecessors as ambassador of the United States to the Republic of Turkey, had his armored Cadillac limousine overturned and burned. Luckily, when I was ambassador and spoke there, it was much less eventful. But she's also uh, got a Ph.D. from Florida International University, where I've actually spoken on several occasions. It's a really lovely place. And she also has taught at George Washington University and the National Defense University and is the author of importantly, of Erdogan's War, A Strongman's Struggle at Home in Syria, which has just been published by Oxford University Press. Ganul, welcome.
1: Welcome. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Your book, I think, is uh, one of the very best I've read uh, in, in a while uh, on Turkey. I would put it in the company of Sonar Chaptay's The New Sultan about type Erdogan. But your book, really, I think, more than any I've read, captures the way in which erdogan has both used foreign policy to further his domestic aims and the degree to which his foreign policy in many ways is subordinated to his domestic political aims during his 20-year rule and we're now you know well into a period where uh, he has ruled turkey longer than kamal pasha Ataturk did and so the imprint uh, that he has on modern Turkey is enormous. G-Gunold, what just start off by telling us what prompted you to write this book?
1: Well, two assumptions, Eric, that I kept hearing, especially in this town. And one was that everything that is wrong with Erdogan's new Turkey, um has something to do with his Islamist background. I remember, and that's in the opening chapter of the book, talking to a Western diplomat who told me, once an Islamist, always an Islamist. So the assumption there was um, the main driver behind the country's authoritarian turn was Erdogan's Islamist ideology. And the second argument that I hear very often uh, in Washington but also in Europe is that turkish foreign policy turkish domestic politics is not relevant uh for the western world what happens inside turkey should not concern the western world as long as uh turkey behaves on the foreign policy front so i wanted to challenge those two assumptions so i made the case in the book that islamism is only one of um the factors that led to Uh, Turkey's authoritarian transformation. And I define Erdogan as first and foremost a populist. And now I know there's a lot of confusion around that concept, uh, but I would say the consensus is that populism is not an ideology. It's a political style. Uh, But it doesn't really offer any solutions to economic, social, and political problems. So populists, they usually match their populist style with different ideologies. And Erdogan did exactly that. When he came to power in 2002, he said that he was not an Islamist anymore and that he defined himself and his new party as a conservative democratic party. And to substantiate that, he used foreign policy. He used Turkey's EU membership and also a very cautious approach vis-a-vis the Middle East to tell the voters that he was a new man, that he was not an Islamist, that he was a a reformer in many ways. And that was an appealing uh, statement, I think, that appealed to a lot of people who would otherwise be very skeptical uh, about an Islamist-rooted politician. Uh, So Erdogan, in the first few terms until 2011, he used that concept and he used that identity that he picked for himself, that conservative democratic identity. And I think it was a brilliant idea because his number one goal when he came to power was to sideline the secularist establishment, but particularly the country's military. And he knew that he could not clash with the military directly. And instead, he pushed for a a uh, very pro-EU, pro-Western agenda because getting Turkey into the EU would ensure uh, that Turkish military was not going to play an outsized role in in Turkish politics because that's what EU membership called for. Uh, so that was a brilliant idea, uh, I think. Idea and uh, with regards to Turkey's. Uh, regional policy, the military always had red lines vis-a-vis the region. And the number one red line was preventing Kurdish separatism. And number two was preventing the spread of political Islam. So Erdogan, after he came to power, he made sure he did not cross those red lines in the Middle East. And instead, he built his Middle East policy, on trade and investment. He didn't really refer to common Islamic heritage, Ottoman heritage. He stayed away from those concepts not to provoke the military. So those strategies, uh, I think, paved the way and he managed to uh, sideline the secularist military and uh, and centralize power in his own hands. And in 20, by 2011, he had already controlled uh, the country's main institutions, uh, including courts, media, Uh, Turkish business. So he had centralized power. So he was done with that uh, conservative democratic brand. Uh, And he needed a new identity for himself and for his party. Uh, And his new goal was to switch the country's parliamentary system uh, to a presidential system without any checks and balances. And he understood that he could not really secure the backing of his previous allies like liberals, uh, conservatives, social democrats and what was basically uh, to establish an autocratic rule. So he turned his attention to a different constituency which was the country's uh, uh, Kurdish and, and Turkish conservatives. So from 2011 onwards he embraced an Islamist ideology and he defined himself as the protector of Muslims And and Islamists. And I think the Arab uprisings came at a perfect moment for him because the Arab uprisings allowed him to uh, basically extend that Islamist platform beyond Turkey's borders. So he threw his support behind the Islamists of the region, trying to topple uh, regional autocrats. And he framed that support as his way of protecting uh, Muslim demands across. The world, so it was a perfect fit for his domestic narrative that he was the protector of Muslims. But then that strategy, when it failed to work, when it failed to secure him what he wanted, then he switched tactics and he became a nationalist. So the book tells the story of how he managed to leap from one ideology to the other. So ideologies that he embraced change, but one thing remained, which is he's always his first and foremost a populist. So that's the main theme of the book. And when I talk about how he transformed the country uh, from an aspiring democracy to a a competitive uh, authoritarian regime, um, I focus on something that's I think largely been ignored, both in the political science literature and in policy circles, and that is the role of foreign policy. So foreign policy is not just about what Erdogan does on the foreign policy on uh, in in international affairs but it's closely tied to his domestic calculations to centralize power.
0: You and I were joking before we came on uh in the green room about uh the fact that I was having PTSD as I I read this book and and it's true because so much of your description of this rings true with my own personal experience which in some ways actually even antedates my arrival in Accra as ambassador. So just to provide some validation for you, in 2000, early 2003, as you recall, he won the by-election in Sirte to get a seat in parliament after having been banned from politics for a number of years. And this occurred just after the failure of the Turkish Grand National Assembly's vote on allowing the 4th Infantry Division into Turkey for the Iraq war. And so I actually, I bumped into Condoleezza Rice. We were both getting coffee at the, uh, at like six thirty in the morning after the election um, in the white house mess. And I said, we really should get the president to call, you know, Erdogan, maybe we could like reverse this thing. And she said, no, I don't think the president's going to do that, but you should get the vice president to do it. So vice president Cheney did in fact call Erdogan and congratulated him on winning his, parliamentary seat. And I was listening in on the call and taking notes. And one of the things that transpired in the call was the vice president said, are you going to have another vote on the test to let the uh, troops in? And I'll never forget Erdogan's answer. He, He basically said, I don't know yet. He said, because I'm a populist type politician and I have to go from strength to strength because of the opposition forces I face. I can't afford to ever lose anything. And but, I'm you know, so I'm going to look at it and decide later. And and of course, they didn't, in fact, have a a second vote at that time. But I mean, it stuck with me because that was his own description of himself uh, as a populist uh, type uh, politician. To use the political science term, which you use in your book, Erdogan was trying to desecuritize Turkey's foreign policy in order to accomplish what you suggest he was setting out to do, which was clip the wings of the military. And, and in that regard, the EU accession program, as you point out, was one very useful tool uh, because the... Um, the uh the EU made it quite clear that the military needed to retreat from its uh, oversight political role in Turkey for it to be considered for membership and then uh he was able to use the program articulated uh by Ahmet Davutoğlu who was one of his advisors and later became his foreign minister and his prime minister that Turkey should have zero problems with its neighbors i mean and uh, you know Davutoğlu's vision was, as you know, very grandiose. It looked at Turkey as a potential, uh, as he would describe it, sometimes Muslim superpower. Of course, Davutoglu having, you know, played out his role for Erdogan was ultimately cast aside and now is leading one of the opposition parties in the table of six, which I think is polling at around 1%, uh, his party that is, not the table of six. But anyway, I, I, I go through all of that because it, you make a very interesting point, which is uh, a lot of us were, you know, spending a lot of time, you know, parsing Davutoglu's writings to try and decipher Erdogan's policy. But you make the point that while Davutoglu was an ideologue, Erdo- Erdogan was not. Erdogan really was much more flexible. He was happy to use this uh, as a way of, as you put it, desecuritizing the environment so that there weren't, you know, uh, a lot of enemies on Turkey's periphery that would justify The military playing a a large role. The irony, of course, is that once this policy was implemented, it ended up, you know, with nothing but enemies on Turkey's periphery after a, a while. How do you explain that irony?
1: Well, to go back to what you said, um, Eric, about um, the march, uh, the parliament's decision not to allow the U.S. troops to use Turkish territory um, to go into Iraq. I'm sure you know, Erdogan actually wanted the parliament to pass that motion. And he was one of the very few and maybe the only person in his party who pushed for that. So that tells you uh, how big of a pragmatist Erdogan has always been because i think at the time he really wanted uh to secure us support uh, but others in his party like abdullah gül for instance who uh who uh, later became the president uh, and and ahmet davutoğlu i think they're more a lot more ideological and they were opposed to this based on on ideological grounds and you're right Ahmed davutoğlu um I think he is the ideologue here, and Erdogan is not. And Erdogan was happy to use his ideas when the time was right for him. Erdogan Davutoglu wrote about these things in the 1990s in his column for Yeni Şafak newspaper. And at the time, he said, you know, Turkey should work with regional autocrats. Uh, but there will come a time when real Muslims will rise against their oppressors. And when that time comes, we have to back those forces. So from Davutoldo's point of view, uh, 2010, late 2010 and 2011 was that time when the Arab uprising started. He really thought that it was a historic moment for Turkey to become the leader of the region again. And people close to him and himself too, they often referred to the Arab uprisings as the Arabs' uh, way of uh, their efforts to topple their own CHP. Because in their narrative, the AKP had come to power and they toppled what they called the godless elitist regime that was not in tune with, uh, with society. Uh, and the AKP, in, in many ways, carried out a revolution. That's how they saw it and democratize the country. So when the Arab uprisings began, uh, Davutoglu thought that finally, I was right. Uh, That the people, the real Muslims are now rebelling against their oppressors and we have to back them. So that's how he saw it. But from Erdogan's point of view, uh, being a very pragmatic leader, he saw that as a golden opportunity for him to once again substantiate the claims he was making on the campaign trail, and that was, I am the protector of the Ummah, the Muslim nation. So I, I I I didn't just um save Turkey's Muslims from the CHP, but I'm gonna do that for for others in the world too. So that's that's his way of telling the voters that he was uh, the protector of, of Muslims across the world. Uh, but i think obviously we now know and later ahmet davutoğlu um, himself admitted that it was short-sighted. and for this book i talked to abdullah gül i i interviewed him and at the time i asked him what he thought of turkey's um support which began very early in the uprisings for muslim brotherhood and right. he said Also, that it was short-sighted. And particularly the the most problematic part was in Syria, because in Syria, um, in Turkey, there's a large group of Muslim Brotherhood members who have been living in Turkey since the 1980s after the Hama massacre. Uh, uh, which killed uh, thousands of Muslim Brotherhood members at the time who had rebelled against the Assad regime. So many of them fled the country and they started living in Turkey. Many of them went to Turkish universities. They hold Turkish passports. Uh, So after the uprising in Syria started, they had the ear of Erdogan and, and Ahmed Davutoğlu and they saw what was happening on the ground through the lens of Muslim Brotherhood in Turkey, which obviously did not reflect the reality on the ground, because from Syrian uh, Muslim Brotherhood members living in Turkey, they the way they conveyed the de- developments on the ground basically told that we are very influential on the ground, which was not the case. And obviously, there was something else that was really wrong with the way Erdogan and Davutoğlu saw developments in Syria, and that was they didn't understand and appreciate how much resentment there was towards Muslim Brotherhood among Syrian society. Uh, And another problematic assumption about Syria by Ahmed Davutoğlu was that he always assumed that Bashar al-Assad only had 10-15 percent Uh, support of society from from Alevi community. He didn't understand that a large group of Sunni Muslims, including middle class, business class, they supported the regime. They benefited from the regime. So for me, for a country like Turkey, who has been there on the ground because of the PKK presence there, how come they did not understand uh, this neighboring country, and the reason I think the answer to that question was because um, Davutoglu's ideology really clouded his judgment. Mm-hmm. And Erdogan, he is he's always been clueless uh, about about the world, uh, but I think Davutoglu led him to believe that Assad was gonna leave in a matter of a uh, right. few weeks, even.
0: Right.
1: And Erdogan believed him, so obviously that was a miscalculation.
0: Yeah, I mean, of course, it wasn't just in Syria, although I want to come back to Syria in a moment, but uh, also backing for the Muslim Brotherhood, Morsi regime in Egypt, which ended up backfiring the uh, support for the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria, which uh, immediately aroused the antagonism of uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the UAE, which were concerned about the brotherhood in their own uh, sphere. It got uh, Turkey very involved in in Libya as well. I think it's very important to point out that this kind of regional activism was really the antithesis of what Turkey had been used to uh, in the sort of Kamalist dispensation, which was, you know, peace in the world, peace at home. You know, Turkey should not play this outsized role in the region, in part uh, because uh, Ataturk and the Kemalists were trying to get away from the Ottoman legacy and concentrate on Turkey as a, you know, Western-oriented uh, nation state. But as as you point out, this is really kind of, first of all, it was not a very popular policy to begin with in Turkey. A lot of reticence about getting involved in Syria and in this, in the Civil War. As you point out, a lot of, how can I put it, Uh, naivete about what was going on. I mean, I I recall Davutoglu even privately telling people some of the uh, Islamist groups were just misled Muslim Muslim youth. They weren't really terrorists. Uh, So, I mean, a real misreading, as you say, of the facts on the ground. But it's ultimately led to a presence of 4 million Syrian refugees in Turkey, which has created an enormous problem domestically, for Erdogan politically, along with his economic mismanagement as well. I want to kind of get to what the political consequences of all this might be, but just tell our listeners a little bit about how much this intervention in Syria both has impacted Turkey as a society and a polity, but also the role it's played in Erdogan's increasing authoritarian turn and and taking the country in a very authoritarian direction.
1: Well, I think Syria played, and that, that it played a very key role in Erdogan's attempts to um, to consolidate his power, and that was one of the reasons why I picked Syria to tell Erdogan's story of transforming Turkey into an authoritarian regime. Uh, Syria played a critical role um, due to several things, and the first one is um, again it came in very handy for Erdogan to burnished the image he picked for himself from 2011 as i said he defined himself as an islamist as someone who would uh who would protect uh, interest and democratic aspirations of of other um, muslims in the region and and in the world so initially uh i think that narrative really struck a a nerve it it became very popular particularly among Erdogan's supporters, because his goal at home was to secure the support of conservatives, both conservative Turks and Kurds, to uh, switch to a, an all-powerful presidency. That was his goal. Um, and, and he used Arab uprisings to, to, to reach that goal, to burnish that image. So initially, uh, that narrative, that Islamist narrative, that he developed, I think it it it worked. And the Syrian war, the conflict there, and Erdogan's support for the Muslim Brotherhood helped Erdogan um, burnish that image. But it also helped Erdogan to weaken um, his opponents. His constant reference to the CHP, he always equated the CHP, the country's main opposition secular party, with the Assad regime. Um, And that, in in many ways, delegitimized the CHP further in the eyes of the the country's conservatives. So he used foreign policy in general, but Syria in particular, to strengthen his image at home and to weaken and divide his opponents. Um, But his calculations to rely on the conservatives and the, the Kurds to switch to the presidential system failed mainly due to cracks on his Islamist front, cracks with the Gulenist problems with the gulenis and also, I think more importantly, Turkey's Kurds refused to back Erdogan's autocratic vision. So that's why in 2015, uh, he didn't get what he won. He lost elections, he lost um, uh, the parliamentary majority, um, and mainly because of the historic victory that the, the pro-Kurdish party captured. And the Syrian conflict there played a role. Uh, Because before 2015, there was a ceasefire in place between the PKK and and Turkey. And that was part of Erdogan's plans to to secure Kurdish votes. He had launched a Kurdish opening opening, uh, in an effort to, to secure Kurdish votes. But in 2014, um, developments and Kobani. If you remember, ISIS was about to capture Kobani and Erdogan said jubilantly that Kobani is about to fall and he didn't open the borders uh, uh, on time to allow Kurdish fighters from different pro- countries, including Turkey and Iraq, to go in and help help the Syrian Kurdish militia there. So that really um, created a backlash. I remember the Kobani protests at the time Uh, Thousands of people took to the streets in protest. They were protesting Erdogan's inaction in the face of this uh, bloodbath. So that was a turning point, into in in two main ways, I think, from the Kurdish point of view. And at the time, I was traveling across the country, especially in the Kurdish region, talking to the Kurds, and many of them said, "We are on the verge of creating our own state. So we're not going to settle for Erdogan's cosmetic." changes, the cosmetic changes that he's offering to us. We want more. So their hopes were up. And from Erdogan's point of view, he had thought before he launched the Kurdish opening, he had thought that he he could secure Kurdish support for the presidential system. And he realized with Kobani protests that that was not going to happen. So that was the first indication and an important impact of what was happening in Syria on Turkish domestic politics. But the, the most critical point came a few months later after the pro-Kurdish party's co-chair, who is now in jail, Selatin Demirtas, declared, we're not going to make you president. So I think that was the moment when Erdogan decided this is not going to happen. The Kurds are never going to back my efforts to switch to a presidential system. And we saw that very clearly when he lost elections in 2015. Right, So things changed dramatically afterwards. And he allied himself with the Turkish nationalists. He resumed the fight against the PKK. And the most chaotic, uh, I think, period in the country's history unfolded uh, in a few months between the two elections. So you could see how directly Turkish domestic politics was impacted by what was happening in Syria. And how did Erdogan use that? I think that's very critical, and we don't speak about that very often. So imagine you're in Turkey in 2015, you're a Turkish nationalist, you are so fearful that Kurds are there about to establish a Kurdish state with American weapons. So there's a lot of anxiety among Turkish nationalists. Uh, and Erdogan...
0: In, in northeastern Syria. To...
1: Northeastern Syria, that's exactly right, because in 2014, the United States airdropped weapons to the Kurdish uh, militia fighting against ISIS in Kobani. So that was a very important moment for Turkey's nationalists. They were really afraid that finally a Kurdish state was being established with U.S. support. And from Kurdish point of view... The Kurds themselves in Turkey, they again thought that we are achieving something big here and Erdogan is not is only going to grant us some cultural rights and we're not okay with that. So imagine two nationalisms on the rise, Kurdish nationalism and Turkish nationalism in Turkey are on the rise and Erdogan exploited that. He wrote on that nationalist surge, and... Thanks to that alliance with the Turkish nationalists, he managed to switch to the presidential system and managed to win election after election until 2019. So that nationalist surge, Erdogan himself boosted, um, uh, did wonders for him. So that's why I think everything that happened in Syria um, really shaped things in Turkey and other way around. Erdogan's own decisions, the steps that he has taken in Syria, changed things dramatically for the people of Syria, too. And uh, and one last thing, I think one of the most dramatic implications of the conflict in Syria for Turkey is Turkish society has changed. Turkey's social fabric has changed forever. We have 4 million Syrian refugees in Turkey. Um, and Turkey is not known to be a tolerant country when it comes to other ethnic identities. It hasn't uh, been able to resolve its own Kurdish problem for for decades. So I can easily imagine a scenario where Turkey will be confronting a huge problem, economic, political, social problems, if it fails to integrate those 4 million Syrian refugees. So in that way, I think um, what happened in Syria um, helped Erdogan in many ways establish his autocratic regime change Turkey forever. But then there came a time when Syria became a liability for Erdogan.
0: I want to turn to the election. I mean, we've talked a little bit about the presidential system. I think just as a prelude to talking about the election, it's worth pointing out that when he finally took this idea of a presidential system, which abolished the position of prime minister, for instance, among other things, to a referendum in the country. He did it because he had succeeded in referenda in the past. So in 2011, I think it was, he uh, introduced a number of uh, measures by referendum that allowed him to neuter uh, the judiciary, basically to stack, stack the courts, uh, which had also been along with the military, one of the pillars of the Kamala secularist establishment uh, before he came to power.
1: 2010
0: I think. Or 2010 yeah so you know he he had a track record for success and I'm sure he assumed that uh, you know would uh, replicate itself in 2017 but in the event 2017 ends up looking more like June 2015 in the sense that this was a very closely run thing and there's pretty good reason to believe that at the end of the day it may not have even passed actually that it that the vote may have been fiddled, uh, particularly in the Southeast. Um, And that's a huge, I mean, I think it's worth for our listeners understanding that's a kind of a huge break with uh, Turkish tradition since 1950 when two-party or or multi-party elections were first held in, in Turkey in the sense that elections have never been completely fair in Turkey because the government's always had outsized power, whoever was in government, the incumbents, had outside power over the media, which were controlled by a very small number of conglomerates, all of which benefited from government contracts of one sort or another, but they've always been free. I mean, there's never been a sense that people were engaged in massive you know, vote fraud, but in 2017, for the first time, that really uh, you know, was something that people uh, became uh, concerned about. In 2019, of course, uh, you were saying he won elections until 2019. In 2019, the municipal, municipal elections are a huge setback for Erdogan, notably including loss of Ankara and where Mansur Yavash was elected mayor and uh, Istanbul where Akrimi Mamoğlu was elected mayor. Erdogan, of course, having been mayor of Istanbul himself, understood how important that was, basically tries to annul the election in Istanbul. But the consequence politically for him, again, backfires because Imamoglu's reelected in the second round when they rerun it in in June of 2019 by an even larger plurality or majority, actually, at that point than he had initially. So coming into the election now, he's got a lot of baggage. He's got all this Syria baggage that you've described. He's got a, a lot of baggage from economic mismanagement. I mean, Turkey's inflation rate, depending on how you calculate, it's between 65 and 80%. The economy has been very badly mismanaged, in part because Erdogan, in the face of all modern economics, insists on keeping interest rates low. This is part of his populism, right? His you know, desire to bribe voters with cheap credit and uh, you know, a lot of government money. So the inflation rate is kind of through the roof covid was sort of mismanaged you know as, as as well and he's been running for a while kind of behind you know most of the opposition candidates what's in store on may 14th you know um, you know which is uh, two weeks i guess from yesterday in this election how how do you think it's likely to play out kind of
1: yeah, before uh, sharing my um, what I see as the most likely scenario in the upcoming vote, uh, let me say something about um, about elections in Turkey. You're right, Eric. I think t- Turkish democracy—I mean, b- even before Erdogan uh, came to power—it's never been a perfect democracy. But one thing worked well, well enough in Turkey, and that was the elections. Uh, turnout has always been high, even in 2018, as late as as 2018, the turnout was 86 uh, percent. So that's a very high, high figure. And people always, even now, even now, uh, imagine we always talk about how Turkey has become an authoritarian country. Uh, And political scientists refer it as a competitive authoritarian regime, which means by definition, elections are not free and fair. But even now, go to any embassy here, Turkish embassy, you'll see how excited people are about the upcoming elections. They still have faith that change is possible through elections. So that's, I find that remarkable. Uh, So that means elections work. But obviously, 2017 referendum was a critical turning point uh, because it changed something in the minds of people. It was a very controversial referendum. Uh, in an unprecedented move, the Supreme Electoral Council, which is Turkey's top electoral body, allowed uh, non-stamped ballots to be accepted as val- valid. Um, and of course, many organizations, international organizations included, they decried this as this move to be illegal. Uh claiming that as many as uh, 1.1 1. 1 million. Uh, ballots were unstamped. So that really cast a shadow over, over we- w- whether elections in Erdogan's Turkey really mattered or not. So that was a turning point. And then came 2019, which changed minds again for the better, because many people thought that, okay, Erdogan lost elections, so maybe elections do matter. And ma- maybe Turkish democracy does have a, uh, a pulp. But still, I can see, having traveled to Turkey very often um, this year and last year, and I talked to a lot of people, there is a growing anxiety. There is hope on the one hand for a change, but people are also very anxious about uh, several things, whether if Erdogan loses, is he just going to walk away? Or is he going to engage in outright rigging? Uh, So those are are all, all the questions. That, that people are asking. Um, and you're right, Erdogan is facing a lot of challenges, even before the earthquake. Um, he has a long list of problems, uh, including double-digit inflation. And the most, I think, the most concerning uh, thing in the country uh, is, is food inflation, which is highest among the OECD countries. Everyone you talk to raise this point uh but that's not the only problem there's institutional bra- breakdown there's no rule of law uh you have a growing young population who just don't see their future in the country there's a huge brain drain uh and the Syrian refugees by the way it's really high among um among voters um uh, the the it's, it's, one of the, it's one of the top worries of, of, of voters. There are four, four million Syrian refugees and people just don't know how, how this issue is going to be resolved. So a lot of problems and there's a lot of resentment even among Erdogan's own supporters. And then came the earthquake, which obviously compounded Erdogan's problems. So now that might make you think that so domestic conditions are ripe for an opposition victory because you put two and two together. And you think about 2018, when Erdogan win elections, he captured 52% of the vote in 2018. And in 2018, we didn't have uh, double-digit inflation. We didn't have any of the problems. I mean, we did, but in, in many ways, they are worse now. So you tend to think that, you know, this is a time where the opposition stands a good chance of winning. But then the next question is, wait, but this is an autocracy. Then why are we getting so excited about the elections? There are so many things that he can do because he controls everything. Uh, So my, and here is my my prediction, and I can answer the question about election security, but my prediction is that I think despite all the problems, the elections are not free and fair uh, and I don't can do anything, but I still think that the most likely scenario is that the opposition is going to win, maybe not in the first round, but in the in the second round.
0: So a couple of points here. One is uh you mentioned his twenty eighteen presidential election uh victory against Mohammed Inje, uh and he got fifty two percent of the vote. It correct me, Ganul, if I'm wrong, but I think in you know, every, in all the elections since two thousand two. That is the first time that he or the AKP, which he embodies, got over 50%. Right? That's right. That's right. Which, which tells you that Turkey is a deeply divided society. It's remained divided and that his populism has been based on kind of polarizing the society because he knows that the opposition is very fragmented, has a lot of fissures, and uh, that he can mobilize his supporters uh, more easily by these kind of polarizing tactics than than the opponents can. So in this instance, the opponents got together and have united in the so-called table of six, which is uh, led by the CHP, the Kamalist uh, party, this center left, but highly nationalist. It's kind of, I mean, it's regarded as a social democratic party uh, but it's it's a little hard to explain to those who haven't had experience with it. It's not it's not Tony Blair's Labor Party. Uh, let me just put it that way. And the national a, a splinter group from the nationalists, uh, Merel Akshinar, the former uh, minister of the interior from the MHP, the Nationalist Party, her uh, E party is represented as our parties from a uh, breakaway groups from the AKP itself. We've already talked about Ahmet D'Avutoglu, but also uh, Ali Ali Babajan, the former deputy prime minister and treasury minister, actually one of my favorite AKP ministers when I was ambassador, as my wife sometimes described him. You know, one of the you know, AKP with a human face. <laughs> but all of this, you know, effort may you know coalesce, but there are some deficiencies that they've got right, which is even though Erdogan has been uh, polling behind almost all of the other candidates. The one who we mo- most people think had the best chance was Ekrem Imamoğlu, the mayor of Istanbul. He was blocked, however, by Kamal Kilic the head of the CHP, a kind of colorless former bureaucrat, charismatically challenged, um, and who uh, insisted as the head of the largest party that he be the presidential candidate. By the way, his handpicked presidential candidate, Mohamed Inge, who we just talked about, a moment ago is also still running so he's dra- draining one or 2% from the opposition which is not helpful Kılıçdaroğlu has consistently polled least well against Erdoğan there was a moment after the earthquakes as as you point out which highlighted you know sort of the what you know what's you know wrong with Turkey after 20 years of uh you know AKP rule right which is AFAD the the Disaster Relief Agency, the you know, version of FEMA, terrible job uh, alleviating um, and remediating earthquake scenes, very slow to get there. Military wasn't mobilized because there's still fear about the military uh, in the aftermath of the 2016 failed coup attempt. Turks have set aside since 1999 something like $40 billion in, of tax money to earthquake-proof uh, the country because of the Istanbul earthquake in, in that year. And people have been asking where where did all the money go, you know, since the, uh, you know, 11 province disaster across the South East was so widespread. And the answer to that, most people know, is it went into the pockets of Erdogan's cronies in the construction industry. So given all that, you know, uh, in the first few weeks after the earthquake, there were a couple of Polls that showed him maybe 10, 12 points behind. Most most recently, the polls have closed up, and I think most observers are saying it's kind of too close to call. I know I noticed uh, the other day there was an Al Monitor poll that showed them literally neck and neck. I think actually Erdogan was slightly under one percentage point ahead in the raw tally, but it was statistically insignificant given the sample size. So. Am I wrong that people were more confident when it looked like it was a 10 to 12 percent spread because it makes it more difficult to cheat? I mean, part of the problem with the 19 or with the 2017 presidential referendum vote was it was so close that you could steal enough votes to to win. Part of the problem they had with Imamolu in 2019 was in the second round, he won by such a huge margin that it was too hard to cheat. Um right. so if it's really close i mean most people are using like i think a a 2% standard if the real vote is like within 2% he can steal it if it's more than 2% then you know then uh it's harder for him to steal it is that the right metric people should be looking at when they're watching election returns come in on May 14th from Turkey
1: That's right Eric i think and and, and one other thing it's really difficult to to steal uh, in big cities. Uh, more problematic is the Kurdish region, especially. But now that we have, after the earthquake, 11 provinces have been hit by the earthquake and there are 8 million voters there. So uh, it gives a lot of opportunity uh, to to do things for Erdogan. But you touched upon a couple of very good points. And, and the first one is, um, Erdogan actually has always relied on alliances to maintain his majority. Right. Um, when he came to power it was just not Islamists, you have conservatives uh, demo, um, Democrats, social Democrats, you have liberals, Turks Kurds, large majority later on it was the Islamists and, and Kurds and later to, from 2015 it was the nationalists but now as things stand today he doesn't have that many options to turn to, he has like, exhausted his options and that's one of the reasons why he's now reaching out to these fringe Islamist parties, like Hudapar, for instance, the Kurdish Islamist party, um, that has a violent past, but he wanted to ally with them. And then you have um, Erbakan's son's party now, which pulls around 1%, 1.5%. And there were rumors that before, in March, he sent a delegation to speak with The PKK's imprisoned leader, Abdullah Öcalan, something that he used before in 2019 elections to to woo the Kurdish voters. So all those things tell me something, and that is um, he really needs every vote he can get. He's not in a comfortable, very comfortable position. And the second thing is that obviously autocrats, they don't need majorities to, to remain in power. All they need is a divided opposition and that was the case in 2018 in 2018 we had six presidential candidates we had um Selatin Demirtaş who is a very popular figure uh, the, the Kurdish leader and then we had in 2018 uh the Meral Akşener e Party which is a splinter party that had been established in 2017 so a year after she was the she uh, was fielded as, as the candidate. And then you had Muharrem Inge. So six, your position was very divided in 2018. But today, they are much less divided. You have two parties, two presidential candidates, Muharrem Inge and Sina Noan. Um, there are different figures about their votes. Uh, they will probably, their vote is somewhere between 5 to 7%. Uh, uh, and that will push the, the, the vote to, to a runoff but not significant enough to deny the opposition a win in the second round. So um, I think what is different for Erdogan uh, is he just cannot secure alliances anymore. Uh, and once he, uh, he rode on the nationalist wave, he really relied on the nationalists. In 2018, the nationalist base was not fragmented enough. Today you have a growing uh, nationalist opposition you have people who are fed up like mhp supporters far-right supporters who are fed up with allying with erdogan and you have sinanoan you have e-party so there is a turkish nationalism that's become increasingly uncomfortable with erdogan which was not the case in 2018 um and also in 2018 we didn't have popular figures such as mansur uh, uh, yavaş ankara's mayor from the chp and ekram Imamoglu, istanbul mayor so they have joined Kılıçdaroğlu's campaign uh, and all those things, I think, make me uh, more optimistic about the opposition's prospects this time. And one last thing about Kılıçdaroğlu, you're right, he is always, uh, he lagged behind others in the polls. He was the least popular candidate. Uh, Ekrem İmamoğlu and Mansur Yavaş, they were the most popular. And yet the opposition fielded him but i see it this way first i think he's he he turned out to be a better campaigner than i had expected he's doing a good job and the second thing is i think he's the right man and for some reason, he he reminds me of biden and i see him as turkey's biden because when president when biden was campaigning a lot of people were talking about how he was not charismatic enough that he w- he didn't have the power to beat uh trump uh, he wasn't aggressive enough. He wasn't this, that. So people were very critical and didn't see him as, as the most ideal candidate. And yet, I remember talking to people here who told me, well, he's the right man. We've suffered four years under President Trump, a very polarized country. He divided the country, very aggressive rhetoric. So we need a man like Biden who can unite the nation, who can reach across the aisle who can talk to the republicans so i see kılıçdaroğlu as that person for turkey maybe he's not as charismatic yeah he's an old man yet still
0: he's younger than uh, biden
1: and he's younger than biden and that's always a plus but i think he also has all those qualities that biden has he can talk to everyone and he's just, and they call him quiet force uh, so he's quiet, he wants to embrace everyone, he wants people to go beyond divisive issues, identity issues. So that's why I think he is the right man. He's the man that this country needs at the time. At this time. So I think that's why he's he's he turned out to be a good choice. And again, his campaign is is uh is I find it very successful. He's not only trying to unify the country, but he's offering tangible solutions to the country's uh, problems. And as for the vote, you're right, if Erdogan, if the opposition wins by a narrow margin, um Erdogan is a track record. We he might pull a Trump and not accept the results. That's I can I can see that scenario. But but obviously what will change the election result, whether the election result uh will be accepted depends on where Turkey's bureaucracy stands. Um Uh, Turkey's top electoral body including military, including a police force, where do they stand? Imagine a scenario, I mean, God forbid, let's say the opposition wins by a narrow margin, Erdogan says I'm not going to accept, they stole the vote, and he calls on his supporters to take to the streets, and this time, uh, something which didn't happen in the past, but this this time it can happen, opposition supporters will take to the streets too, because uh, they're so hopeful. And that could lead to a street violence. So in that scenario, what will the country's institutions do? Will they back an Erdogan who has lost? Uh, And I think it's not a foregone conclusion that they will support him. I've seen some signs from bureaucracy that Turkish bureaucracy is hedging its bets. Uh, Look at some of the recent decisions made by the constitutional court, despite Erdogan's protests and a decision made by Turkey's top electoral body, despite protests from the AKP. So that tells me that that Turkish bureaucracy is hedging its bets, and it's not going to be as easy for Erdogan to manipulate the result as he did previously.
0: We're we're running out of time, Ganul, so I, I have one more question before before we wrap up, which is this. I mean, you've already talked a little bit about this, which is, some very potentially dark scenarios about what happens if he tries to steal the election. But what strikes me about Erdogan is he's a lot like, you know, Putin or Orban or these other strongmen or wannabe strongmen, which is for him, an electoral loss is almost an existential question because he has every expectation. That if he loses the election, he will be indicted and perhaps and his family will be indicted and, and jailed. Uh, there's a widespread perception that uh, he has profited enormously from his 20 years in office. I mean, he's become a fabulously wealthy man, which he obviously didn't didn't happen on his state state salary. So can he actually afford to lose this election? I mean, does he have to win? just for his own personal security and and safety and that of his family?
1: Great question. I think you mentioned Putin. I think Turkey is not Russia yet. Again, as I said, um, elections are not symbolic. Competition is real. They might be unfree and unfair, but the competition is real. So in that regard, I think uh, elections matter a lot more in Turkey than they do in in Putin's uh, Russia. But in terms of Uh, High stakes. Yes, the stakes are very high for Erdogan. And I know a lot of people from the opposition ranks, opposition supporters, they want him to be tried for what they see as, as the crimes that he had committed in the 20 years he's been in power. And that raises the stakes for Erdogan even further and his family. But here is what I think. It's going to be a very messy process. Imagine if Kulistarol wins it's not going to be easy to open the old chapters because there are so many people uh, in the opposition ranks right now who worked very closely with Erdogan, who served as his ministers. So I think, and and I, I one journalist said, um, you know, after the elections, there will be two AKPs in the parliament, referring to Erdogan's AKP and the AKP, former AKP, Members of Parliament who uh, who are running on CHP ticket now, so so that is something to consider, and I think that tells you that it's not going to be easy for the opposition after winning the elections to try everyone to try Erdogan. Um, uh, so I think that should give some comfort to Erdogan just to walk away peacefully if he wins uh, if he wins the elections. And the second thing is, I think. Even if he loses the elections, Erdogan is not going to to uh, disappear. We're not going to see a Bolsonaro. He's not going to flee the country because we're talking about a man who still commands forty to forty five percent of the vote. So he's going to be there waiting for the opposition to fail, uh, because the opposition will be inheriting a huge. Um, uh, uh, big problems from economy, rebuilding the country, rebuilding the institutions, switching to the parliamentary system. So that requires a lot of uh, uh, political capital. And Erdogan and others in the opposition, too, expect the new government to fail because the problems are so huge. So that's why I think Erdogan is going to remain in the country after even if he loses the elections. And I think that's another thing to consider when we talk about is he gonna do something really crazy to change the election results i think that will be a consideration for him too so why push for uh, a scenario that could turn violent uh, and risk a trial maybe um, while you could just wait for the opposition to fail so i think we should we should take these things into consideration
0: well on that Relatively speaking, upbeat note, Ganul, we're going to have to to wrap up. Our My guest has been uh, Ganul Toll, the author of Erdogan's War, A Strongman's Struggle at Home and in Syria, published by Oxford University Press. Terrific book. If you want to understand what's going on in Turkey and you want to read something before the election to give you a good basis for decoding what's happening, I rec- highly recommend the book. If you enjoyed this episode of Shield of the Republic, let us know. You can register that approval with a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and drop us a line at shieldoftherepublic@gmail.com. at gmail.com.